Quiet Talks About Jesus by S. D. Gordon. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read for you by Chiquito Crasto. Part 1 The Purpose of Jesus. Continuation of Subpart 3 The Tragic Break in the Plan. The Murderous Rejection. This crisis leads at once into the final stage, the murderous rejection. Jesus is now a fugitive from the province of Judea because the death plot has been deliberately settled upon. The southern leaders begin a more vigorous campaign of harrying him up in Galilee. A fresh deputation of Pharisees come up from Jerusalem to press the fighting. They at once bring a charge against Jesus' disciples of being untrue to the time-honored traditions of the national religion. Yet it is found to be regarding such trivial things as washing their hands and arms clear up to the elbows each time before eating, and of washing of cups and pots and the like. Jesus sharply calls attention to their hypocrisy and cant by speaking of their dishonoring teachings and practices in matters of serious moment. Then he calls the crowd together and talks on the importance of being clean inside, in the heart and thought. Before all the crowds, he calls them hypocrites. It's a sharp clash and break. Jesus at once withdrew. It is the fourth time that significant danger word is used. This time his withdrawal is clear out of the Jewish territory, far up north to the vicinity of Tyre and Sidon on the seacoast, and there he attempts to remain unknown. After a bit he returns again, this time by a roundabout way to the Sea of Galilee. Quickly the crowds find out his presence and come. And again, many a life and many a home are utterly changed by his touch. With the crowd come the Pharisees, this time in partnership with another group, the Sadducees, whom they did not love especially. They hypocritically beg a sign from heaven, as though eager to follow a divinely sent messenger. But he quickly discerns their purpose to tempt him into something that can be used against him. The sign is refused. Jesus never used his power to show that he could, but only to help somebody. The fall of that year found him boldly returning to the danger zone of Jerusalem for attendance on the Harvest Home Festival called by them the Feast of Tabernacles. It was the most largely attended of the three annual gatherings, attracting thousands of faithful Jews from all parts of the world. The one topic of talk among the crowds was Jesus, with varying opinions expressed, but those favorable to him were awed by the keen purpose of the leaders to kill him. When the festival was in full swing one morning, Jesus quietly appears among the temple crowds and begins teaching. The leaders try to arrest him, but are held back by some hidden influence, nobody seeming willing to take the lead. Then the clique of chief priests send officers to arrest him. 
but they are so impressed by His presence and His words that they come back empty-handed to the disgust of their superiors. Great numbers listening believe on Him, but some of the leaders mingling in the crowd stir up discussion so sharp that, with hot passion and eyes splashing green light, they stoop down and pick up stones to hurl at Him and end His life at once. It is the first attempt at personal violence in Jerusalem, but again that strange restraining power, and Jesus passes out untouched. As He quietly passes through and out, He stops to give sight to a blind man. Interestingly enough, it occurs on a Sabbath day. Instantly the leaders seize on this and have a time of it with the man and his parents in turn, with this upshot that the man for his bold confession of faith in Jesus is shut out from all synagogue privileges in accordance with the decision already given out. He becomes an outcast with all that that means. It's a fine touch that Jesus hunts up this outcast and gives him a free entrance into his own circle. After this feast visit to Jerusalem, Jesus probably returns to Galilee, as after previous visits there, and then one day leads his band of disciples up to the neighborhood of snow-capped Hermon. Here probably occurs the transfiguration, the purpose of which was to tie up these future leaders of his against the events now hurrying on with such swift pace. From this time begins the preparation of this inner circle for the coming tragedy so plain to his eyes. Then begins that memorable last journey from Galilee to Jerusalem through the country on the east of the Jordan. With marvelous boldness and courage, he steadfastly set his face toward Jerusalem. The ever-tightening grip of his purpose is in the set of his face. The fire burning so intensely within is in his eye as he tramps along the road alone, with the disciples following, awestruck and filled with wondering fear. Thirty-five deputations of two each are sent ahead into all the villages to be visited by him. What an intense campaigner was Jesus! He was thoroughly, systematically stumping the whole country for God. As he approaches nearer to the Jerusalem section, the air gets tenser and hotter. The leaders are constantly harrying his steps, tempting with catch questions, seeking signs, poisoning the crowds, mosquito warfare. He moves steadily, calmly on. Some of the keenest things he said flashed out through the friction of contact with them. A tempting lawyer's question brings out the beautiful Samaritan parable. The old Sabbath question provokes a fresh tilt with the synagogue ruler. There is a cunning attempt by the Pharisees to get him out of Herod's territory into their own. How intense the situation grew is graphically told in Luke's words. They began to set themselves vehemently against him and to provoke him to speak many things, laying wait for him to catch something out of his mouth. 
though unmoved by the cunning effort of the pharisees to get him over from herod's jurisdiction into judea despite their threatening attitude the winter feast of dedication finds him again in jerusalem walking in one of the temple areas instantly he is surrounded by a group of these jerusalem jews who with an air of apparent earnest inquiry keep prodding him with the request to be told plainly if he is really the christ his patient reply brings a storm of stones almost held in check for a while by an invisible power or by the power of his presence shown under such circumstances so often again they attempt to seize his person and again he seems invisibly to hold their hands back as he quietly passes on his way out of their midst then comes the stupendous raising of lazarus which brings faith in him to great numbers and results in the formal official decision of the national council to secure his death he is declared a fugitive with a prize set upon his head anybody knowing of his whereabouts must report the fact to the authorities this decides him not to show himself openly among them in a few weeks the pilgrims are crowding jerusalem for the passover jesus's name is on every tongue the rumor that he was over the hills in bethany takes a crowd over there not simply to see him but to see the resurrected lazarus then it was determined to kill lazarus off too that tremendous last week now begins jesus is seen to be the one masterly figure in the week's events in comparison with his calm steady movements these leaders run scurrying around here and there like headless hens the week begins with the most public formal presentation of himself in a kingly fashion to the nation it is their last chance how wondrous patient and considerate is this jesus and how sublimely heroic into the midst of those men ravenous for his blood he comes seated with fine unconscious majesty on a kingly beast surrounded by ever increasing multitudes loudly singing and speaking praises to god over paths bestrewed with garments and branches of living green slowly he mounts the hill road toward the city at a turn in the road all of a sudden the city lies spread out before him he saw the city and wept over it he sat upon the ass's colt and rode to a jerusalem beside him walked closely and silently the faithful twelve and on before him went a multitude shouting hosannas and with eager hands strewing their garments thickly in the way the unbroken foal beneath him gently stepped tame as its patient dam and as a song of welcome to the son of david burst forth from a thousand children and the leaves of the waving branches touched its silken ears it turned its wild eye for a moment back and then subdued by an invisible hand meekly trod onward with its slender feet the dew's last sparkle from the grass had gone as he rode up mount olivet 
the woods threw their cool shadows directly to the west and the light foal with quick and toiling step and head bent low kept up its unslackened way till its soft mane was lifted by the wind sent over the mountain from jordan as he raised the summit's breezy pitch the saviour raised his calm blue eye there stood jerusalem eagerly he bent forward and beneath his mantle's passive folds a borderline than the wont slightness of his perfect limbs betrayed the swelling fullness of his heart there stood jerusalem how fair she looked the silver sun on all her palaces and her fair daughters mid the golden spires tending their terrace flowers and kedron's stream lacing the meadows with its silver band and wreathing its mist mantle on the sky with the morn's exhalation there she stood jerusalem the city of his love chosen from all the earth jerusalem that knew him not and had rejected him jerusalem for whom he came to die the shouts redoubled from a thousand lips at the fair sight the children leaped and sang louder hosannas the clear air was filled with odor from the trampled olive leaves but jesus wept the loved disciple saw his master's tear and closer to his side he came with yearning looks and on his neck the saviour leaned with heavenly tenderness and moaned how oft jerusalem would i have gathered you as gathereth a hen her brood beneath her wings but ye would not he thought not of the death that he should die he thought not of the thorns he knew must pierce his forehead of the buffet on the cheek the scourge the mocking homage the foul scorn gethsemane stood out beneath his eye clear in the morning sun and there he knew while they who could not watch with him one hour were sleeping he should sweat great drops of blood praying the cup might pass and golgotha stood bare and desert by the city wall and in its midst to his prophetic eye rose the rough cross and its keen agonies were numbered all the nails were in his feet the insulting sponge was pressing on his lips the blood and water gushed from his side the dizzy faintness swimming in his brain and while his disciples fled in fear a world's death agonies all mixed in his ah he forgot all this he only saw jerusalem the chosen the loved the lost he only felt that for her sake his life was vainly given and in his pitying love the sufferings that would clothe the heavens in black were quite forgotten was there ever love in earth or heaven equal to this and so the king entered his capital it was a royal procession mark keenly the result and that utter ominous loud silence that greeted his ears first more than three years before he had come to his own home his own kinsfolk received him not then each day he came to the city 
and each night homeless slept out in the pen under the trees of Olivet and the Blue. Now he rudely shocks them by clearing the temple areas of the marketplace rabble and babble, and now he is healing the lame and maimed in the temple itself, amid the reverent praise of the multitude, the songs of the children, and the scowling, muttered protests of the chief priests. Calmly, day by day, he moves among them, while their itching fingers vainly clutch for a hold upon him, and as surely are held back by some invisible force. By every subtle device known to cunning, crafty men, they lay question traps, and lie in wait to catch his word. He foils them with his marvellous simple answers, lashes them with his keen cutting parables, and finally himself proposes a question about their own scriptures, which they admit themselves unable to answer, and, utterly defeated, ask no more questions. Then follows that most terrific arraignment of these leaders, with its infinitely tender, sad, closing lament over Jerusalem. That is the final break. Then occurs that pathetic Greek incident that seems to agitate Jesus so. This group of earnest seekers from the outside, non-Jewish world, brings to Jesus a vision of the great hungry heart of the world and of an open-mindedness to truth, such as was to him these days as a cool, refreshing drink to a dusty mouth on a dry, hot day. But no, the Father's will, simple obedience, only that was right. The harvest can come only through the grain giving out its life in the cold ground. Before the final act in the tragedy, Jesus retires from sight, probably for prayer. Some dear friends of Bethany, in whose homes he had rested many a time, where he ever found sweet sympathy, arranged a little home feast for him, where a few congenial friends might gather. While seated there in a quiet atmosphere of love and fellowship, so grateful to him after those Jerusalem days, one of the friends present, a woman, Mary, takes a box of exceeding costly ointment and anoints his head. To the strange protests made, Jesus quietly explains her thought in the act. She alone understood what was coming. Alone, of all others, it was a woman, the simple-hearted Bethany Mary, who understood Jesus. As none other did, she perceive with her keen love-eyes the coming death, and more, its meaning. It is one of the disciples, Judas, who protests indignantly against such waste. This ointment would have brought at least seventy-five dollars, and how much such a sum would have done for the poor? Thoughtless, improvident woman. Strange, the word didn't blister on his canting lips. John keenly sees that his fingers are clutching the treasure bag as he speaks the word, and that his thoughts are far from the poor. Jesus gently rebukes Judas. But Judas is hot-tempered, and sullenly watches for the first chance to withdraw and carry out the damnable purpose that has been forming within. He hurries over the hill, through the city gate, up to the palace of the chief priest. 
Within there was a company of the inner clique of the leaders, discussing how to get hold of Jesus most easily. They sit heavily in their seats, with shut fists, set jaws, and that peculiar yellow-green light spitting out from under their lowering knit brows. These bothersome crowds had to be considered. The feast day wouldn't do. The crowd would be greatest then, and hardest to handle. Back and forth they brew their scheme. Then a knock at the door. Startled, they look alertly up to know who this intruder may be. The door is opened. In steps a man with a hang-dog, guilty, but determined look. It is one of the men they have seen with Jesus. What can this mean? He glances furtively from one to another. Then he speaks. How much will you give me if I get Jesus into your hands? Of all things, this was probably the last they had thought might happen. Their eyes gleam. How much indeed? A good snug sum to get their fingers securely on this person. But they're shrewd bargainers. That's one of their specialties. How much did he want? Poor Judas. He made a bad bargain that day. Thirty pieces of silver. He could easily have gotten a thousand. Judas did love money greedily, and doubtless was a good bargainer too. But anger was in the saddle now, and drove him hard. Without doubt, it was in a hot fit of temper that he made this proposal. His descendants have been coining money out of Jesus right along, exchanging him for gold. Only a little later, and the master is closeted with his inner circle in the upper room of a faithful friend's house in one of the Jerusalem streets for the Passover supper. A word from him, and Judas withdraws from his dark errand. Then those great heart talks of Jesus in the upper room, along the roadway, under the full moon, maybe passing by the massive temple structure, then under the olive trees. Then the hour grows late. The disciples are drowsy. The Master is off alone among those trees. Then weird, uncertain lights of torches, a rabble of soldiers and priests, a man using friendship's cloak and friendship's greeting. Then the king is in the hands of his enemies. An awful night, followed by a yet more awful day, and the plan of the kingdom is broken by the tragic killing of the king. Suffering the birth pains of a new life. Why did Jesus die? It's a pretty old question. It's been threshed out no end of times. Yet every time one thinks of the gospel, or opens the book, it looks out earnestly into his face, and nothing is better worth while than to have another serious prayerful go at it. The whole nub of the gospel is here. It clears the ground greatly not to have any theory about Jesus' death, but simply to try thoughtfully to gather up all the statements and group them, regardless of where it may lead or how it may knock out previous ideas. It can be said at once that his dying was not God's own plan. It was a plan conceived somewhere else and yielded to by God. God had a plan of atonement by which men who were willing could be saved from sin and its effects. 
That plan is given in the old Hebrew code. To the tabernacle, or temple, under prescribed regulations, a man could bring some live animal which he owned. The man brought that which was his own. It represented him. Through his labor, the beast or bird was his. He had transferred some of his life and strength into it. He identified himself with it further, by close touch at the time of its being offered. He offered up its life. In his act, he acknowledged that his own life was forfeited. In continuing to live, he acknowledged the contained life as belonging to God. He was to live as belonging to another. He made, in effect, the statement made long after by Paul, I am offering up my life on this altar for my sin. Nevertheless, I am living. Yet the life I live is no longer mine, but another's. Mine has been taken away by sin. There was no malice or evil feeling in the man's act, but only penitence and an earnest, noble purpose. The act revealed the man's inner spirit. It acknowledged his sin, that life is forfeited by sin, his desire to have the sin difficulty straightened out, and to be at one again with God. He expressed his hatred of sin and his earnest desire to be free of it. I am not saying at all that this was true of every Hebrew coming with his sacrifice. I may not say it of all who approach God today through Jesus, but clearly enough, all of this is in the old Hebrew plan devised by God. It was the new choice that brought the man back to God, even as the first choice had separated him from God. And the explicit statement made over and over is this, and it shall make atonement. Clearly, Jesus' dying does not in any way fit into the old Hebrew form of sacrifice, nor into the spirit of the man who caused the death of the sacrifice, though in spirit, in requirement, it far more than fills it out. The Old Testament scheme is Jewish. The manner of Jesus' death is not Jewish, but Roman. As a priest, he was not of the Jewish order, but of an order non-Jewish and antedating the other by hundreds of years. In no feature does he fit into the old custom, but every truth taught by the old is brilliantly exemplified and embodied in him. The epistle to the Hebrews was written to Jews who had become Christians, but through persecution and great suffering were sorely tempted to go back to the old Jewish faith. They seemed to be saying that Jesus filled out neither the kingdom plan nor the mosaic scheme of The writer of the epistle is showing with a masterly sweep and detail the immense superiority of what Jesus did over the old mosaic plan. Read backward, these provisions are seen to be vivid illustrations of what Jesus did do, not in form, not actually, but in fact, in spirit, in a way vastly ahead of the Hebrew ritual. The truth underneath the old was fully fulfilled in Jesus, though the form was not. One needs always to keep sharply in mind the difference between God's plan and that which he clearly saw ahead, and into which he determined to fit in carrying out his purpose. There is no clearer, stronger statement of this 
than that found in Peter's Pentecost sermon. Him being delivered up by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye by the hands of men without law did crucify and slay. God knew ahead what would come. There was a conference held, the whole matter talked over. With full knowledge of the situation, the obstinate hatred of men, the terrific suffering involved, it was calmly read backward. These provisions are seen to be vivid illustrations of what Jesus did do, not in form, not actually, but in fact, in spirit, in a way vastly ahead of the Hebrew ritual. The truth underneath the old was fully fulfilled in Jesus, though the form was not. One needs always to keep sharply in mind the difference between God's plan and that which He clearly saw ahead, and into which He determined to fit in carrying out His purpose. There is no clearer, stronger statement of this than that found in Peter's Pentecost sermon. Him being delivered up by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye by the hands of men without law did crucify and slay. God knew ahead what would come. There was a conference held, the whole matter talked over. With full knowledge of the situation, the obstinate hatred of men, the terrific suffering involved, it was calmly, resolutely advised and decided upon that when the time came, Jesus should yield Himself up pliantly into their hands. That is Peter's statement. This in no way affects the fact that Jesus dying as He did is the one means of salvation. It did not at all disturb any of Paul's statements in their plainest first-flush meaning. It does explain the kingdom plan and the necessity for Jesus finishing up the kingdom plan some day. For though God's plan may be broken and retarded, it always is carried through in the end. It explains, too, that evil is never necessary to good. Hatred, evil never helps God's plans. The good that God brought out of the cross is not through the bad, but in spite of the bad. The preaching of the Acts is absorbed with the astounding, overshadowing, appalling fact of the killing of the nation's king. But through it all runs the strain of reasoning. The kingdom plan has been broken by the murder of the king. He has been raised from the dead in vindication of his claim. This marvelous power that is so evident to all eyes and ears is the Holy Spirit whom the killed king has sent down. It proves that He is now enthroned in glory at God's right hand. He is coming back to carry out the kingdom plan. Now the thing to do is to repent, and so there will come a blessing now, and by and by the King again. When the first church council is held to discuss the matter of letting non-Jewish outsiders into their circle, the clear-headed judicial-tempered James in the presiding chair puts the thing straight. He says, Peter has fully told us how God first visited the outside nations to take out of them a people for Himself. And this fits into the prophetic plan as outlined by Amos, that after that the kingdom will be set up, and then all men will come. 
This brings out in bold relief the fact that the horrible features of Jesus' dying, the hatred and cruelty, were in no part of the plan of salvation and not necessary to the plan. The cross was the invention of hate. There is no cross in God's plan of atonement. It is the superlative degree of hate, brooded and born, and grown lusty in hell. It was God's master touch that, through yielding, it becomes to all men, for all time, the superlative degree of love. The ages have softened all its sharp, jagged edges with a halo of glory. It is perfectly clear, too, that Jesus died of His own accord. He chose the time of His death and the manner of it. He had said it was purely voluntary on His part, and the record plainly shows that it was. All attempts to kill Him failed until He chose to yield. There are ten separate mentions of their effort, either to get hold of His person or to kill Him at once before they finally succeeded. He was killed in intent at least three times, once by being dashed over a precipice and twice by stoning, before he was actually killed by crucifixion. Each time, surrounded by a hostile crowd, apparently quite capable of doing as they pleased, yet each time he passes through their midst and their hooked fingers are restrained against their will and their gnashing teeth bite only upon the spittle of their hate. This makes Jesus' motive in yielding explain his death. The cross means just what his purpose in dying puts into it. If we read the facts of the gospel stories apart from Jesus' words, the cross spells out just one word in large pot-black capitals, hate. What was Jesus' motive or purpose in dying? His own words give the best answer. The earlier remarks are obscure to those who heard, not understood. And we can understand that they could not. At the first Passover, He speaks of their destroying this temple and His raising it in three days. Naturally, they think of the building of stone, but He is thinking of His body. To Nicodemus, He says that the Son of Man must be lifted up. And to some critics, that when the bridegroom is taken away, there will be fasting among his followers. Later, he speaks more plainly. After John has gone home by way of Herod's red road, at the time of the feeding of the five thousand, there is discussion about bread and the true bread. Jesus speaks a word that perplexes the crowd much, and yet he goes on to explain just what he means. It is in John, the sixth chapter, verses 53 to 57, inclusive. He says that if a man eat his flesh and drink his blood, he shall have eternal life. The listening crowd takes the words literally and, of course, is perplexed. Clearly enough, it is not meant to be taken literally. Read in the light of the after events, it is seen to be an allusion to his coming death. Such a thing as actually eating his flesh and drinking his blood would necessitate his death. We men are under doom of death written in our very bodies, assured to us by the unchangeable fact of bodily death. Now, if a man take Jesus into his very being so that they become one in effect, then clearly, if Jesus die, the man is freed from the necessity of dying. 
Through Jesus' dying there is for such a man life. That is the statement Jesus makes. In five distinct sentences He attempts to make His meaning simple and clear. The first sentence puts the negative side. There is no life without Jesus being taken into one's being. Then the positive side. Through this sort of eating there is life. And with this is coupled the inferential statement that they are not to be spared bodily death because they are to be raised up. The third sentence that Jesus is the one true food of real life. The fourth sentence gives a parallel or interchangeable phrase for eating and drinking, that is, abideth in me and I in him, a mutual abiding in each other. The food abides in the man eating it. The man abides in the strength of the food he has taken in. Eating my flesh means abiding in me. The last sentence gives an illustration. This living in Jesus, having Him live in us as closely as though actually eaten, is the same as Jesus' own life on earth being lived in His Father, dependent upon the Father. And when the crowds take His words literally and complain that none can understand such statements, He at once explains that, of course, He does not mean literal eating. The flesh profiteth nothing. Even if you did eat it, it is the spirit that gives life. The words are spirit and life. The taking of Jesus through his words into one's life to dominate, that is the meaning. A few months later in Jerusalem, he speaks again of his purpose in John's 10th chapter. The good shepherd layeth down his life for the sheep. I lay down my life for the sheep. The death was for others because of threatening danger. Other sheep I have which are not of this fold. Them also I must lead. Here is clear foresight of the wide sweep of influence through his death. I lay down my life that I may take it again. The death was one step in a plan. There is something beyond. I lay it down of myself. I have the right to lay it down, and I have the right to take it again. This commandment I received from my father. The dying was voluntary, and was agreed to between the father and himself. To the disciples he speaks of the need of taking up a cross in order to be followers, and to the critical Pharisee asking a sign. He alludes to Jonah's three days and nights in the belly of the sea monster, Neither of these allusions conveyed any definite idea to those listening. Then the last week, when the Greeks came, except a grain of wheat fall into the earth and die, it abideth by itself alone. But if it die, it beareth much fruit. The dying was to have great influence upon others. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto myself. The dying was to be for others and to exert tremendous influence upon the whole race. In that last long talk with the eleven, that the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father gave me commandment, even so I do. The dying was in obedience to his Father's wish and was to let men know of the great love between Father and Son. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. 
this dying was for these friends and in that great prayer that lays his heart bare for their sakes i sanctify myself that they also may be sanctified in truth the dying is for others and is for the securing in these others of a certain spirit of character the reference to the dying being in accord with the father's wish comes out again at the arrest the cup that the father hath given me shall i not drink it to these quotations from jesus's lips may be added a significant one from the man who stood closest to jesus referring to a statement about jesus made by caiaphas john adds being high priest that year he prophesied that jesus should die for the nation and not for the nation only but that he might gather together into one the children of god that are scattered abroad as john understood the matter the death was not simply for others but for the jewish nation as a nation and beyond that for a gathering into one of all of god's children jesus was to be god's magnet for attracting together all that belonged to him the death was to be a roadway through to something beyond from his own words then jesus saw a necessity for his dying he must be lifted up that must spells out the desperateness of the need and the strength of his love sin contains in itself death for man as a logical result and by death is not meant the passing of life out of the body that is a mere incident of death death is separation from god it is gradual until finally complete love would plan nothing less radical than a death that would be for man the death of death his death was to be for others it was purely voluntary it was by agreement with his father in obedience to his wishes and as evidence of his filial love the death is a step in a plan there is something beyond growing out of the death jesus plans not merely a transfer of the death item but a new life a new sort of life in its place the dying is but a step it is a great step tremendously great indispensable the step that sets the pace yet but one step of a number beyond the dying is the living living a new life he works out in himself the plan for them a dying and after that a new life and a new sort of life then according to his other teaching there is the sending of some one else to men to work out in his name in each of them this plan that plan is to be worked out in each man choosing to receive him into his life he will send down his other self the holy spirit to work this out in each one jesus's death released his life to be relived in us jesus plans to get rid of the sin in a man and put in something else in its place the sin must be gotten out first washed out then burned out then a new seed put in that will bear life what a chemist and artist in one is this jesus he uses bright red to get a pure white out of a dead black in addition to the plan for man individually 
the dying is to produce the same result in the Jewish nation. There is to be a national new birth, a new Jewish people, and then the dying is to have a tremendous influence upon all men. On the cross, Jesus would suffer the birth pains of a new life for man and for the world. Such, in brief, seems to be the grouping of Jesus' own thought about His dying. Its whole influence is manward. The value of Jesus' dying lies wholly in its being voluntary. Of deliberate purpose, He allowed them to put Him to death. Otherwise, they could not as is fully proven by their repeated failures. And the purpose as well as the value of the death lies entirely in his motive in yielding. If they could have taken his life without his consent, then that death would have been an expression of their hate and only that. But as it is, it forever stands an expression of two things. On their part of the intensest, hottest hate, on his part of the finest, strongest love. It makes new records for both hate and love. Sin put Jesus to death. In yielding to these men, Jesus was yielding to sin, for they personified sin. And sin yielded to quickly brought death, its logical outcome. Jesus' dying being his own act, controlled entirely by his own intention, makes it sacrificial. There are certain necessary elements in such a sacrifice. It must be voluntary. It must involve pain or suffering of some sort. The suffering must be undeserved, that is, in no way or degree a result of one's own act, else it is not sacrifice but logical result. It must be for others, and the suffering must be of a sort that would not come save for this voluntary act. It must be supposed to bring benefit to the others. Each of these elements must be in to make up fully a sacrifice. There are elements of sacrifice in much noble suffering by man. But in no one do all of these elements perfectly combine and blend, save in Jesus. To this agree the words of the philosopher of the New Testament writers. It would be so, of course, for the spirit of Jesus swayed Paul. The epistle to the Romans contains a brief-packed summary of his understanding of the gospel plan. There is in it one remarkable statement of the Father's, a purpose in Jesus' death. In the third chapter, verse 26, freely translated, that he might be reckoned righteous in reckoning righteous of the man who has faith that he might be reckoned righteous, that is, in his attitude toward sin, that in allowing things to go on as they were, in holding back sin's logical judgment, he was not careless or indifferent about sin or making light of it. He was controlled by a great purpose. God's great difficulty was to make clear at once both his love and his hate, his love for man, his hate for the sin that man had grained in so deep that they were as one. For the man's sake, he must show his love to win and change him. For man's sake, he must show his hate of sin that man too might know its hatefulness and learn to hate it with intensest hate. His love for man is to be the measure of man's hate for sin. The death of Jesus was God's master stroke.
At one stroke he told man his estimate of man and his estimate of man's sin, his love and his hate. It was the measureless measure of his hate for sin and his love for man. It was a master stroke too, in that he took sin's worst, the cross, and in it revealed his own best. Out of what was meant for God's defeat came sin's defeat and God's greatest victory. And the one simple thing that transfers to a man all that Jesus had worked out for him is what is commonly called faith. That is, trusting God, turning the heart Godward, yielding to the inward upward tug, letting the pleasing of God dominate the life. This, be it keenly marked, has ever been the one simple condition in every age and in every part of the earth. Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him for righteousness. The devout Hebrew, reverently, penitently, standing with his hand on the head of his sacrifice at the tabernacle door, believed God, and it was reckoned to him for righteousness. The devout heathen, with face turned up to the hilltop, and feet persistently toiling up, patiently seeking glory and honor and incorruption, believes God, though he may not know his name, and it is reckoned to him for righteousness. The devout Christian, with his hand in Christ's, believes God, and is counted to him for righteousness. The devout Hebrew, the earnest heathen, and the more enlightened believer in Jesus, group themselves here by the common purpose that grips them alike. The Hebrew with his sacrifice, the heathen with his patient continuance, and the Christian who knows more in knowing Jesus stand together under the mother wing of God. End of Section 6 Read for you by Chiquito Crasto, Birmingham, Alabama